Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. Everybody good? Liars. (laughs) We'll get there. All right, well, this is so exciting, y'all. Don't you love it when you have a really good plan? The plan is coming together perfectly. And then the Holy Spirit just scraps everything. Isn't that wonderful? So wonderful. You all are anticipating now, oh no, what's happening, right? So here's the story. Uh, I got together with my father-in-law this week. um, And uh, most of you know, uh, he influenced a great deal of this sermon series. He influences a great deal of everything that I do. Uh, And he is still influencing a great deal of everything that I do. Uh, And he uh, told me, Um, that he felt very strongly that we needed to slow down and take our time with this. And and the big thing that he kept saying to me is, slow down and pray, because we can't miss this. And I am inclined to agree. (laughs) This is the problem with the Beatitudes, right? It's the problem that we have in everything uh, when it comes to biblically, gospel, Jesus. We have this mistaken idea as Christians that we graduate, right? That, you know, when, when you raise your hand for salvation and, and somebody comes over with you and you pray the sinner's prayer and you've accepted Jesus, that I've graduated. I've graduated from the gospel and now I move on to deeper teachings. And now I move on to the deep things. And, and we got to be careful. There's an element of truth to that, right? Paul tells the churches, hey, Y'all should be so much further along now. You're still drinking spiritual milk when you should be eating solid food, right? Stop being Christian babies and grow up. But the problem that we get into, especially us in the United States, as, as the Western world becomes more civilized, it's funny, we call ourselves civilized, y'all. When we get 100 years down the road, they're going to look back at us and think we're barbarians. Isn't it funny how that works? That's how it always works. That's how it's worked from the beginning of time. You always look back and think, oh, those barbarians, they thought they were so cultured, but look at us now, right? We're we're in the same boat, y'all. We're going to look back and see, they're going to look back at us and think that we're just as barbaric as everybody else. But we think we're so wise, right? And so we chase after this wisdom with everything that we are, and especially in the Western church today, You guys know, I've ragged on it enough, I probably don't need to keep doing it, but there is so much content out there, and it appeases our itching ears because we dig into these things, and honestly, y'all, it's stuff we don't even need to be digging into. I firmly believe when we get to heaven, God is not going to be like, Jeremy, how many Christian authors did you read? I don't think he's going to care. I think he cares way more to say, Jeremy, how well did you know my word? Right? I mean, you guys all know this, and again, I'm not forcing anybody to take on anything that God's called me to. I learned that lesson a long time ago. That's a no-no. 
you do what God's told you to do. But a long time ago, God told me when we started this church that I was only to read the Bible. And y'all, I have not picked up, some of you know how painful this is to me, but I have not picked up a Tim Keller book since then, right? I haven't read any other Christian author, nothing else, because I don't want the gospel house to be built man's way. Even if I really respect that man and the thing that God does through that man, I don't want the gospel house to be built that way. I want it to be built God's way. So this is all I read. This is the only book that I read. And so all these quotes that I have from other authors, that's all old knowledge. That's stuff that I got a long time ago. But this is all I'm reading. But guys, we've got to get there. And the way we get there is not to move on to some fancy, frilly teaching. The way we get in there, when Paul says, get off of spiritual milk and get into food, then y'all, we need to get a knife and a fork and we need to dig in. Which means we don't move on in the Beatitudes. When we hit something, and I warned y'all, I told you something like this was going to happen, didn't I? But when we get to the Beatitudes, especially these ones that Jesus begins with, because these are foundational. But guys, the problem is you can't move off your foundation, right? The Davises are building a house right now. Tim builds lots of houses, but right? You can't move off your foundation, right? If Tim builds his foundation over here, and then he builds his house over here, the house isn't going to stand. Well, I built a good foundation. Yeah, but you didn't put anything on it, right? We cannot move off our foundations, and that goes with this stuff. So instead of, the church is really good today, y'all, at surfacey teaching, and so we hit a thousand different subjects, spiritual gifts, you know, healing, all these things, and all over the place, and we surface it up, but we don't get deep on anything. So I agree with my father-in-law. Surprise, surprise. Is anybody surprised by that? We got to slow down, and we've got to dig in. So we're going to take a couple weeks on this singular Beatitudes, and then we're going to take a whole month on the last one, if not longer. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because Jesus starts with that one, and as it comes, if I have come to find out, and many people have come to find out, y'all, I think that is the single most important thing for us to figure out. If we can figure out in this life how to be poor in spirit, God's going to do some absolutely incredible things through us. But that's got to be where we start. But we can't get there yet, because we still got to talk about those who mourn. And that is what we talk about this week. Blessed are those who mourn. And this is another one of those. We've had a couple of these in this sermon series, but this is another one where we read it and we think to ourselves, time out, Jesus, right? We talked about this, blessed are the persecuted. That's not blessing, right? Those who mourn, mourning isn't blessing. I've read the blessed life. I've heard the sermons preached. I know that's not blessing, right? And it's not what we preach as blessing, is it? Because when we teach blessing in the church, it's not blessed are those who mourn. It is blessed are those who have power, who have possessions, who have health and blessing and all the things. That's what's blessed, right? Yet, Jesus says, not blessed are those who have long life, not blessed are those who tragedy never touches, but blessed are those who mourn suffering and loss, weeping and mourning. We talked about this last week, about inheriting the earth. But if God calls something blessed and we disagree, that's not God's problem. 
That's not, we don't go in and say, oh, God was wrong. Highlight that in red because <laughs> he missed that one. That's not how it works, right? We as Christ followers need to figure out, all right, I don't like mourning. Anyone? Does anyone in here like mourning? Careful how you answer that because you might be surprised. But we don't like mourning. We don't like weeping. We don't like suffering. But if Jesus says that there's blessing in it, then we've got to figure out where that blessing is, how we get that blessing, what we have to do. The fact of the matter is the creator of the universe who made you and knows you best, better than yourself, better than anyone else, he says you are blessed when you learn how to mourn. But we've got to do it his way, right? And so we'll get there. So today we are going to embrace weeping, and it all rhymes. Isn't that exciting? So look at this. We got weep with me, weep with thee, and weep with we. That last one was a stretch, but it rhymes, so you gotta, gotta forgive me a little bit here. So that's what we're gonna talk about. So first up, Weep With Me. It's actually one of my favorite worship songs. There's a band out there called Rend Collective, if you've heard of them. They've got a lot of kind of off-the-path, catchy worship songs, but they got one slow one that's like, it'll melt you, especially when you're walking through something that's, that's tough. It's called Weep With Me, and it just, every time I hear it, it's like butter, like turn into a blob, messy, sloppy, ugly crying. Like, but, but guys, this is one of the most incredible things about Christianity. It's one of the most incredible things about our God, is that we serve a God. We serve the only God who weeps with us. There is no other God, no other God who can make this claim, at least not like our God can. We serve the only God. We're told this over and over again in the word, that God is right there with us in our sorrows. But it's not just that. We also see in the life of Jesus Christ, in the Gospels, that we have a God who weeps with us. One of the shortest, Bible quiz question time, the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. You guys are so smart. I couldn't pull that one over on you. I, I actually didn't know. I had to ask my kids because I couldn't. I knew what it was. I knew it was Jesus wept. I didn't remember where it came from. But my kids knew John eleven thirty five, shortest verse in the Bible. Now, there's been a lot made of this verse, right? You guys have probably heard it before. You've probably heard it preached on before. It is the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is probably one of the most power-packed. It's got the most theological depth to it because we serve a God who weeps. And it's not just that Jesus wept. It's that Jesus wept and weeps with us. He sympathizes with us. He feels our pain. And what would be incredible, it would be absolutely incredible if we had a God in heaven who could say, I feel so sorry for you. Yes, my heart goes out to you, my creation. Even though he is so much higher and so much better and so much holier, it'd be amazing if we had a God who said that, right? that he felt sorry for us. But Jesus is so much different, y'all. Jesus is different than any other God in any other major world religion because he is the only God who put skin in the game. He is the only God who didn't just say from afar, oh, I feel pity on you. But he said, I'm going to come down. And I am going to, Hebrews 4 tells us, he walked through everything we walked through. He was tempted in every way that we were tempted. We are tempted, yet he was without sin. 
This is the only high priest, y'all. This is the only God who can make this claim. He came to earth. He felt everything that we felt. He suffered every way that we've suffered. He was abandoned, rejected, killed, murdered, suffered the, the most unjust trial in human history. He suffered it all so that he could know how we feel, so that he could weep with us. Not just say, oh, I feel so sorry for you, but to say, I've been there. I've gone through it. I feel your pain. See, this isn't like other religions. You know, in Roman and Greek mythology, you hear of gods coming down to earth a lot, right? If you've studied that in school, if you haven't, check it out sometime, I guess. It's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. But gods came down all the time. But every time they came down, it was to cause trouble, right? They made mischief. They played jokes on men. They did all sorts of things probably they shouldn't be doing. But that's what they did. No god came down and gave up his godhood. No god came down and gave up his power. But we talked about this last week, right? Jesus came down, and there were elements of of the supernatural life that Jesus kept. But the only thing supernatural about Jesus happened when he was walking in the will of the Father, right? And we talked about this last week. Not one time, not once, In Jesus' life, did he ever use his supernatural power to serve himself? There is no other God who ever did that. And there definitely is no other God who came down and made himself mortal for the exact purpose that he would be killed, to pay a price for sins he never committed. Jesus is the only one, y'all. Those are the depths to which Jesus went to sympathize with us to weep with us, to relate to us. In every single way, we serve the only God who knows exactly what we're going through, who knows firsthand what pain and suffering feel like, who knows firsthand what it means to mourn. But it goes even deeper than that. It's hard to imagine it goes deeper than that, right? Isaiah 53 is such a great verse. Uh, Mark Hansen was telling me he's memorizing this one. I memorized this uh, way back when. It's since been lost in the madness that is up here, but at one point it was memorized. But Isaiah 53, if you've never checked it out, check it out. It's one of the best messianic prophecies in the Bible, which just means it's a prophecy about Jesus written before Jesus was born. That's part of one of the things I love so much about it, though. I used to use this when I was in college for people who were questioning Christianity. I always used it as an apologetic tool because you, you show it to people, you read it with them, and you say, like, okay, who is this describing? And everybody, everybody who knows anything about Jesus will say, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. And then you'll get some people who think they're smart. be like, oh, yeah, I think that comes from uh, the Gospel of Luke. And you can say, ah, no, actually, it comes from Isaiah, which was written 700 years before Jesus actually existed. And then they're like, whoa, Jesus must be real. Just kidding, nobody ever says that. But it is a pretty cool thing that you can do to to show off for people. It's like a magic trick. But this is what Isaiah 53 says. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. However, it was our sickness that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. I want to go back here real quick, though. We don't soak this in. See, I think we get too quickly to the back part of that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement, depending on what version you have it memorized, that's some of the versions. But, but we, we get focused on that, right? And so then we assume, oh, well, this just has to do with Jesus' death. Y'all, I don't think so. I absolutely do not think so. Because what does Jesus' appearance have to do with his death? Right? Y'all, this, this is the beef I have with some of these TV shows and movies that try to portray Jesus, right? We get this blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that looks like Fabio. You know, he's all rippling muscles and like he just stepped off the cover of a trashy romance novel. And, and we get this Jesus out there, but y'all, look at the prophecy. Look at what it says. Jesus was ugly, y'all. You see that? Am I, am I, am I missing something? Right? He had nothing in his appearance that would draw us to him. He wasn't an attractive man. We paint Jesus out to be this happy-go-lucky, look at me living life to the fullest. I'm going to go play a trick on John. (laughs) Where? Where do you see that? And look, you know, I I acknowledge we don't get every single detail of Jesus' life given to us in the Gospels. But y'all, when I look at this prophecy, I have an extremely hard time reconciling this happy-go-lucky trickster Jesus that plays practical jokes on people with a man of constant sorrows, familiar with grief and suffering. Because this is the prophecy, y'all. It's not just who Jesus was, it's who he was born to be. Jesus was a man familiar with grief. That means it wasn't something that he experienced once on a cross, but that it was a lifestyle that slapped him in the face every day. Every single day we see a man stricken with grief, a God who weeps. And honestly, y'all, if you go back and read through the Gospels, and I challenge you to do so, Turn off the TV for one week or put down your other Christian literature, your Christian self-help books and read your Bible, but read the Gospels and find me. I, I can think of two off the top of my head, two places in the Gospel where we see and are specifically told that Jesus rejoiced, that Jesus full of joy had an outburst of joy. Two places that I can think of off the top of my head. Challenge you to go, that's your challenge this week. You can go prove me wrong, all right? Go find more. But every other time, we are either not told what Jesus was feeling, or we are shown a Jesus who very clearly was deeply angry, deeply upset, deeply sorrowful, deeply mourning. Every single 
time we see Jesus. And it really makes sense. If we want to actually get out our fork and our knife and dig in to Jesus, instead of just staying on the surface and calling him this happy-go-lucky jokester. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ was there when all of this was created. Jesus Christ is there when all of this ends. And when Jesus Christ put on flesh and came to earth, he was sent to live in the middle, to dwell in the middle of this broken creation. Remember last week how we talked about at the end how this earth isn't worth inheriting as it is? But it was at one point, right? And Jesus was there. And it will be again, right? And Jesus is there. And in the life of Jesus, can you imagine that? I want you to imagine this. That you were there when everything was perfect. That you were there when every single one of God's creation did nothing but sing praises and glory and honor in the Lord our God. And then you are tasked with coming to the earth when it's all gone to hell. When everything has fallen apart. When that creation that used to sing God's praises is now singing the praises of literally every other idol and God out there except the one true God. Even those who say they worship the one true God aren't really worshiping him. And you think being there in the beginning, being there in the end, and seeing how perfect it can be coming from heaven where it is perfect and you're singing God's praises all the time, you've known nothing through all of eternity except God's presence and perfection, and now you're stuck in this? You think you're going to be happy about that? It doesn't make sense. Can you see that? Can, can we... Can we come together on this? Now look, I, we got to be careful. I have to be careful. If you guys haven't noticed, I'm not the most cheery guy in the world. I tend to be kind of a glass half empty guy, a little pessimistic side of the bed. That's why Jana, I married Jana. She keeps me balanced. She's very optimistic and makes sure that I don't, you know, go on torch and burn missions every Sunday morning and just blow it all up. But, but y'all, so, so we have this tendency with Jesus to, to read ourselves into him right? If I'm super optimistic and super peppy and I love life and oh, everything's great, then that's who I want Jesus to be, right? Because it builds me up if Jesus looks like that. But if I'm pessimistic and oh, Eeyore, you know, remember Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, right? Oh, I guess it's gonna rain today, right? That's who we want Jesus to be if that's how we are, because we want Jesus to look like us. It goes back to that making God in our image instead of God making us in his image, so, yes, Jesus has joy. There is happiness in Jesus, and I'm sure he experienced that happiness here on this earth. But I am certain that happiness was driven when his disciples got it right, when these people he was talking to got it right, when he saw God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And when we get to heaven, y'all, I don't think Jesus will be mourning. I don't think any of us will be because the Bible says so, right? So praise Jesus, I get to leave my pessimistic attitude down here when I go up to glory with him, right? You guys are going to see a whole different Jeremy that you've never seen before. 
Like, man, Jeremy, I didn't know you could dance like that. Yeah, I got moves. Something, I don't know. Like what? But y'all, let's reconcile this. Every day Jesus walked this earth would have been a slap in the face to the God who created all of these things. There is no way you can come from perfection, from being in the perfect peace of God's presence to this madness down here and not mourn over how lost this creation has become. God left perfection for this. I cannot imagine that he was happy about that. He was happy to come, happy that his life here, his death here, would bring us salvation, but not happy in the midst of it. And because of that, y'all, there's a little work we have to do. Because it is incredibly comforting. There is abs- there's no better comfort than it, y'all, to know that we have a God who mourns with us, right? To know that we have a God who sympathizes with our weakness and who weeps with us. But unfortunately, that's where many of us end the sermon. And I've preached that sermon before. We've, we've talked about that before. But not this sermon, y'all. Because along with God weeping with us, we need to learn to weep with him. It's not good enough to just say, God weeps with me and be comforted and cuddle up in it like a warm, cozy blanket. We've got to say back to God, now God... I know that you weep with me, but I want to weep with you, right? There's Bob Pierce. uh, He he actually is the founder of the Christian humanitarian organization World Vision. Uh, If you've never heard of World Vision, uh, it's a pretty cool thing. They've got, you know, they're all over the world in third world countries. There's even some, you know, they do aid here in the United States, but they're all over the globe. Actually, our Gospel House kids sponsor World Vision Children, so if you are interested, learn about that. Um, you can talk to me about that, I guess. But he, he's the founder of, of World Vision, and he has this famous prayer that said this, Let my heart be broken for the things that break the heart of God. Y'all, this is the aim of our mourning. Because our mourning can be aimed in the wrong direction. Our mourning can be aimed at the wrong things. You see it a lot during political season. (laughs) Right? What are we upset about? Are we upset because our pride's hurt because we lost an election? Or are we upset for the right things? Because the will of God, the will of God is being done. I almost said that wrong, but... Because, because God's righteousness isn't coming through. Because, because morality, morally, moral-wise, morally speaking, it, it, it's God's will isn't being done. But what are we upset about? Because we can aim this wrong. It's great that God weeps with us, but how do we weep with him? Right off the bat, right off the bat in the Bible, Genesis 6. We see this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. So the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Y'all, what breaks the heart of God? We talk about this. Anytime his creation decides 
I actually don't need you, Lord. Anytime Jeremy decides, you know what, God? I know how to do this better than you do. I'm going to take the wheel. Anytime. And you know, we can blow it up and say, well, anytime man sins against God, it's the wicked things that he doesn't like. It's the immoral actions. and Y'all, that is far too narrow a, a brushstroke of what sin is. Sin is anything that is not God's way. Right? What breaks God's heart? when we choose man's way over God's way. So what needs to break our heart? Right? Do you see the aim? Our hearts must be broken for the things that break God's. Guys, it has got to break my heart. It has got to break my heart that I choose to go my own way. Because until it breaks my heart, y'all, I am never going to stop choosing my way. When life gets hard, when the road gets bumpy and uncomfortable, I am going to go right back to choosing my way until it breaks my heart that I'm not choosing God's. Don't focus on anyone else, y'all. Don't look at anyone else. Let it sit with you. What breaks my heart is the sin that I leave unattended to in my life. And I have got to get that right because it breaks God's heart. I think our issue here, y'all, is that it doesn't, our sin doesn't break us nearly enough. When we choose our way over God's, it does not break us if we're being honest with ourselves. Right? But it has to just like every other beatitude, because, because if our aim is off, there is no blessing in it. If we are mourning because we've lost position, if we're mourning because we've lost power, if we're mourning because we've lost possessions, and it's not aimed at God, there's no blessing in it. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, if we mourn man's way, there is no comfort. If we mourn for the things of this world, look, y'all, it's not bad to mourn, right? If you lose a loved one, if you, if you, you know, don't get a job, if you, whatever it is, it's okay to mourn. But we've got to mourn for the things of God if we truly want to be comforted. Because our problem today is that the, this world is looking for comfort in anything but God right? And y'all, I'll be honest with you. If you look for comfort, you'll find it, right? We all know how to find comfort, don't we? But when we don't mourn God's way, we're not going to find his comfort, which means we search for comfort in the bottom of a glass. We search for comfort through some prescription medications, we search for comfort in the arms of another lover, whatever it is, right? In the, let's, oh, just all the extremes, right? We search for comfort in the bottom of a bowl of ice cream. We're just as guilty of that too, right? Oh, I've just had such a hard day, I need ice cream. Right? Look, we can point to all the addicts and make them out to be jerks, but the fact of the matter is we all turn to things other than God, don't we? Oh, I just need that game on my phone to just veg out and not, not deal with anything right now, right? 
But the reason we're searching for comfort so much is because we're not looking to God to provide it. We're not broken for the things that break his heart. And so he can't comfort us with only the comfort he can provide. There's one more thing after this. One more thing that we have to do with our mourning. And I can't say I've ever heard this before, so that's how you know it's a Holy Spirit thing, right? Right? If it's completely new, it's got to be the Holy Spirit. Just kidding. We have to disciple with our mourning. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody teach that before. That was, that, that was a new revelation to me as I was getting ready with this. But y'all, too many times, too many times, we go to God and God, I'm crying out to you, weeping to you, comfort me, and he comforts us. And again, we grab our snuggly blanket and, ah, oh, your comfort is so nice, Lord. That's not how God deals with us, though. That's not what God wants from us. When we mourn, we must share our mourning. We've talked about this here before. This is a Van Robison original, but discipleship is not a communication of knowledge, but a communication of life, right? We've said that here before. But part of life is mourning, right? So when we mourn, y'all, the tendency is, this is my tendency, I'll, just, I'll give you a sneak peek at me, this is my tendency. When I'm hurt, when I'm angry, when I'm, when I'm sad, I turtle. I see it in my son all the time. He does the same thing. Elam does the same thing. When he's angry, when he's mad, he turtles. That means you crawl up in your shell and people come at you. Come on, Jeremy, what's wrong? Jeremy, nothing, nothing, nothing. Leave me alone, nothing, right? But you sit there with the pursed lips and everybody and their mother knows that you're upset, right? That's what I do. That's me, right? And too many times we do that with our mourning. We're going to hit this harder next week when we're going to really dig into what it means to be comforted by God. But, but that's the tendency. We're hurting, and so we turtle. But when you turtle with your hurting, when you don't tell people that you're hurting, you can't disciple with your mourning. You can't disciple others. You're not doing life with other people. And when you're not sharing life, y'all, you're not discipling. I don't care what the church tells us today. They tell you you can go to some classes and that's discipling. That is not discipling. Discipling is a communication of life, not of knowledge. And so we've got to share our mourning, which means we have to learn to weep with we. I know it sounds weird. But we've got to weep together, church. We've got to mourn together. God weeps with us, but he also expects us to weep with him for the things that break his heart to break ours. And when we go through that, he expects us to weep with each other. There's this incredible passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Which means God does not comfort you so you can be comfortable. 
He does not comfort you so that you can sit there and say, ha, I've been comforted. How nice. God comforts you so you can comfort others. Y'all, we as disciples of Jesus must use our mourning. We must use our weeping. There's this passage from Psalm 126. says this, Those who sow in tears shall harvest with joyful shouting. One who goes here and there weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his, heart, or his sheaves with him. Plant your tears. Plant your weeping. Do you see it, y'all? You have to use your mourning. We have to use our mourning. If God comforts me in my weeping, if he comforts my mourning, and I just snuggle up with my bag of tears, and I don't plant them, nothing's going to happen right? But when I mourn, if I use those tears, we have to use our mourning, church. This means something that we really don't like, though. This means that there is a very uncomfortable work within all of this that we have to do. It's called vulnerability, right? I called y'all out on this when we first started, remember? How y'all doing? And every single person in here said, good. And I said, liars. Right? Y'all look, I'm public enemy number one. Every single one of you. I, I did it again today. I knew I was preaching this, and I did it again today. Every single one of you who walked into this door and I greeted, you asked me how I was doing, and what did I say? Thumbs up. Great. Right? Right? I was lying. Now look, part of it's because it's socially acceptable, right? The Walmart, if I walk into Walmart and the Walmart greeter says, hi, young man, how are you doing? I say, man, I have had the worst week. I'm about to get divorced to my wife. My, my cousin's addicted to drugs. My, you know, and I go on this tangent. The, guy, the Walmart greeter's like, right? Because you don't really expect anybody to answer you when you ask, how are you doing? You don't expect honesty. Shame on us, church. Shame on us for asking the question here in this building and not expecting honesty. But shame on us, church, and shame on me for lying when somebody asks me how I'm doing. I am not okay. I am not doing well. Every day is a struggle, y'all. I am tired, and I feel like I'm pulling the weight of the world. And there's no rest. And every night I go to bed, I got to wake up and do the same thing the next day. That's how I feel. How are you doing, pastor? But the devil sitting on my shoulder says, Jeremy, if you tell people that, they're not going to come to you with their problems. They don't want a pastor who's broken. They don't want a pastor who struggles. They need a super pastor. They need one of those pastors up in the ivory tower who drives a Lamborghini and it's got this mega church and the smoke and the lights. And Oh, I'm not that guy. And y'all, Jesus doesn't want you to be that guy or that girl. We have got to humble ourselves enough to be real. 
so that when someone asks in the body of Christ, now look, if it's a stranger you meet on the highway, I'm not, I'm not suggesting you bare your soul to him or her, right? I'm not suggesting you do this when you're walking out in your neighborhood because people are going to slowly, you're going to start noticing when you go for walks, people are going to show up less and less. They're going to start, maskers are coming, and they're going to start sprinting inside, right? We don't want to hear the laundry. But in the church, y'all, right here, we have got to get this right. We talk about this a lot. Ministry responds to need, right? The most basic definition of ministry is ministry responds to need. And so we have to learn to respond to the needs that we see around us. But church, part of the reason why nobody can respond to your need is because you're not humble enough to let them see you have one. Guilty. Me, here. Right? I hate asking for help, y'all. Because there's, there's even the slimmest part of me that thinks if I ask this person for help, they're going to think less of me as their pastor. But can I tell you now, guys, I can't do this by myself. I want the gospel house to grow. I want us to be huge. I want us to, and not, not for vain reasons, but because I want to reach more people with this gospel message. But I can't do it by myself. And so I need to humble myself and ask you to help me. I need to humble myself and say, y'all, I am not okay. I am tired, and I don't know what I'm doing. And I need you to help me. I need you to respond to this need, right? And I hope I'm not alone. I hope that you all are feeling that conviction too, that I have said I am fine far too many times in these walls, in the, these safe walls of this church. And so that's what we need to do this morning, y'all. We're going to end, and we're going to spend time weeping with each other. Weeping with we, the body of Christ. Our goal, Gospel House, is God himself. At any cost and by any road. And our mourning needs to reflect that. Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.